Thanks for uh, uh, keeping the break short. We're uh, on a tight schedule today, so this is going to be a, a, a very efficient uh, uh, and a very tightly managed uh, panel. <laughs> My name's uh, David Bryden. I'm a, a postdoc here at Birkbeck, and I'm a member of the Reluctant Internationalists uh, Project. We've got three uh, great panels uh, for you, or three great papers for you on this panel, and we're going to be discussing uh, uh, the search for a shared language in various different uh, situations. So our first paper is going to be from Mark Vorovich, uh, who is a doctoral candidate uh, at Princeton and whose uh, research looks at uh, the, the German uh, use of the German language in uh, Jewish internationalism, Jewish international organisations in the late 19th and early 20th uh, centuries. All right, thank you. Thanks, everybody. I'll go straight ahead. So. German was the dominant language of Zionism between the 1890s and the First World War. The movement's headquarters were located in Germany, its main periodicals were printed in German, and so were the majority of its scholarly and political publications. When Russian Zionist Nachman Sirkin offered in 1898 a socialist agenda for the Zionist movement, he published an article, quote, that was written in German and was addressed to the Zionist audience of the time, as he later recalled. This should come as no surprise considering German status in world politics and the cultural orientation of the Zionist leadership at the turn of the century. Nonetheless, German's linguistic dominance was fraught with various political and historical sensitivities. Since the late 18th century, German was associated with different, often conflicted ideas of Jewish modernization, assimilation, religious reform, and secularization. It served as a controversial reference point both for advocates of the Jewish Enlightenment and for its opponents. Since the 1870s, certain Jewish nationalists saw German as a role model of a prestigious international language of science, politics, and culture that could help advance the Jewish national cause. For others, German was a catalyst of deliberate or undeliberate assimilation into German and Christian culture, a marker of the Western liberal alternative to Jewish self-determination. What is more, the Hebrew language served as one of the chief sources of legitimacy for the Jewish national cause. In this respect, German's centrality was indicative of Western Jews' alleged detachment from Judaism's religious and linguistic roots. German was thus a lingua franca of the Zionist movement, but also an emblematic not Hebrew, a reminder of the missing linguistic unity of the Jewish nation. As Zionist rhetoric based itself largely on the anomaly of Jewish national existence on European soil, the utilization of German rendered this anomaly visible. In what follows, I examine German status in Jewish nationalism through the prism of the Zionist Congress, which was first convened by Theodor Herzl in 1897, serving as the major platform in which Zionist delegates from around the world met to discuss key ideological and political questions. I rely on the protocols of the Congress, participants' diaries and memoirs, as well as on contemporary reports in the Jewish press regarding the Congress's linguistic landscape and its underlying tension between functional and ideological considerations. As I hope to show, while aimed at promoting the Zionist cause and mediating between different parts of the Jewish world, German's prominence often intensified historical, political, and cultural division, divisions in the movement. The walls of the Basel Stadtcasino, where the first Congress was held, were filled with portraits of Russian Jewish nationalists from the 1870s and 1880s, alongside other forerunners of the Zionist idea. 
This came to convey the idea that proto-Zionist sentiments prevailed across the Jewish world in the decades preceding the movement's establishment. The Congress's setting, however, drew predominantly on German cultural and ceremonial customs. The Congresses were replete with German symbols and music. Wagner's overture to Tannhäuser was played at the opening of the Second Congress. The Hebrew version of the invitation to the First Congress, addressing Eastern European Zionists, noted that the speakers were free to use Hebrew. In reality, as one of the participants admitted, Hebrew was scarcely heard. In the following Congresses, speeches and conversations were held in different languages, though German maintained its dominant role. From the very outset, the role of German as the chief language of communication was challenged on practical grounds. It was indeed Yiddish that had the largest number of speakers within the movement. The speech that, re that received the loudest applause, according to British Zionist Israel Cohen, was held in Yiddish by a mid-rank Eastern European activist. To be sure, many Zionist activists had already learned German in their youth, and its proximity to Yiddish made it more accessible than other foreign languages. Yet in the Congress Hall, there was a de facto coexistence of German, Yiddish, Russian, and other languages, building up, as one participant called it, quote, a bubble tower of languages in which many of our brethren cannot understand each other. Cohen recalled how, quote, it was doubtful whether many were able to understand the elegant German in which Herzl spoke. The communicative difficulty was at times entangled with ideological issues. Despite mastering the German language, Russian Zionist Menachem Musishkin declined Herzl's request at the Congress of 1899 to speak in German, replying, I speak mainly to those who understand me and who wish to understand me. I want to speak only in a manner which will allow my position to be properly understood, and this I can achieve only in Russian. The discomfort resulting from the need to translate the speeches into various languages also touched on cultural divisions within the Jewish world. Aaron Marcus, a Hasidic Zionist rabbi from Krakow, wrote in 1900 in his German language newspaper about the Babylonian confusion of the Congresses. The root of this condition, according to Marcus, lay in the, quote, modern assimilatory education and the damage that it had inflicted on the rightly famous Jewish linguistic genius. He bitterly wondered how come a Levantine Talmudic Jew could speak five or six languages whereas a Russian Jewish student, quote, does not understand the word of any other world language. Marcus's reproach of Jewish assimilatory currents was directed against Russian Jews, although these currents had been more common within the German-speaking realm. Yet due to German status as a global language and its role in the Jewish world, it was not, in Marcus's eyes, part of the Zionist Babylonian problem. German's dominance also played a role in ideological quarrels between the proponents of a diplomatic approach and a grassroots approach to Jewish, to Jewish political matters. In the Jewish political discourse of the period, the term Congress Zionism denoted Western European Zionists clinging to diplomatic channels and philanthropy. For Eastern European Zionists, it was also associated with the ceremonialism and the bourgeois air of the Zionist Congress, as well as with its, with, with its uh, remoteness from the experience of the Jewish masses. In these circles, attachment to German had problematic ideological implications. In the 1903 Congress, Russian Zionist and future leader of the Revisionist Party, Vladimir Jabotinsky, gave a provocative speech in highly eloquent Russian, as he himself put it, and exceeded the limit of 15 minutes. In his, <laughs> in his autobiography, Jabotinsky quoted the words with which Herzl and his assistants requested him to get off the podium. <laughs> Herzl, and now I quote, Herzl told me, Ihre Zeit ist um. 
one of the, his assistants, Herr Friedman, told me in his native Prussian way, gehen Sie herunter, sonst werden Sie heruntergeschleppt. According to historian Michael Stanislavski, Herzl was not present in the hall, and Herr Friedman was actually Herr Bodenheimer. The veracity of the incident is therefore questionable. <laughs> Be that as it may, Jabotinsky's decision to speak in Russian seems to have directed at disrupting the Germanophone atmosphere of the Congress, or at least this is how he hoped the incident would go down in history. In this manner, Jabotinsky sharpened the divide between the ideological world of Prussian Zionists and its Russian counterparts. Moreover, German's dominance in the Zionist Congress was a technical but symbolically serious disruption of Zionism's Hebraist agenda. In the 1907 Congress in The Hague, Nahum Sokolov, the movement's general secretary, issued a proposal to declare Hebrew as the movement and the Congress's official language. This included an instruction that the opening speech would be held in Hebrew, while allowing other languages to be used due to, quote, the necessity of popularizing the ID. The proposal received negative responses. Belarusian delegate Shimshon Rosenbaum argued that Sokolov was in essence expecting Zionist leader Max Nordau to learn Hebrew, uh, quote, to learn Hebrew within two years so well that he would be able to give his speech in Hebrew. In other words, we would never hear this speech. <laughs> Rabbi, Rabbi Zalis Dykes, who grew up in Lithuania, graduated from a modern Orthodox rabbinical seminary in Berlin and who would become the leading rabbi of Scottish Jewry, objected on theological grounds. He argued that, that as long as Judaism's diasporic condition persisted, Hebrew should not be the language of the Congress. Quote, the exile Congress must have an exile language so that we keep awake our longing for Hebrew. Out of love for the Hebrew language, please decline Sokolov's proposal. In this respect, as historian Michael Berkowitz suggests, the use of the German language facilitated Orthodox Jews' participation in the Zionist Congress, given their reluctance to use Hebrew in profane domains. By confirming its, its status as a diasporic tongue, German acquired an important historical role as it buttressed the Zionist cause without undermining the, the movement's religious impulse. Using German appeared in this framework not merely as a communicative convenience, but indeed a religious necessity. David Wolfson, Herzl's successor in the, as the president of the Zionist organization, stated that in its present form, Sokolov's suggestion, quote, might make the Congress a laughingstock. Uh, Sokolov then proposed a shortened version in which Hebrew's official status would be of symbolic importance only. The Congress approved this version despite protests from several attendees. Wolfson then proceeded to the next su subject on the agenda as Max Bodenheimer, a German Zionist with no knowledge of Hebrew, interjected humorously, in Hebrew, please. <laughs> the next Congress has continued to be held predominantly in German, though a growing number of speeches were held in Hebrew. In the aftermath of the Great War and the Balfour Declaration, Zionist politics evinced a structural shift as London became its imperial center of gravity. Moreover, the establishment of a number of independent states in Central and Eastern Europe strengthened Zionist resolve to mobilize the rhetoric of national self-determination, centered on a shared ethnicity, territory, and language. Against this backdrop, not knowing Hebrew from the point of view of Zionists in Eastern Europe and Palestine had immediate detrimental implications, as it impeded Jews' ability to demonstrate their national cohesiveness. The Zionist Congress, a German-dominated venue of Jewish politics, saw in the interpeared more vocal resentment over the language problem. In a speech given in Germany in the 1921 Congress, uh, Jabotinsky asserted that he had intended not to say a single word in a language which is not Hebrew. 
he added, we will pay a heavy price for the fact that this Congress is linguistically foreign and hence acquires foreign characteristics. Jabotinsky explained that it is only because he seeks to attack certain participants who do not speak Hebrew that he turned to German. He expressed his hope that, quote, this would be the last time. Jabotinsky's hope, however, had yet to materialize. A reporter for the Hebrew periodical Hatzfira wrote during the 1927 Congress that despite the fact that Hebrew, Yiddish, and English were accepted languages of speech, the true owner of the Congress was still German. In the 1929 Congress, one of the participants said he would prefer to speak in Hebrew, but the majority of the Congress doesn't understand it, hence choosing to speak in German. At that point, which, at this point, we should ask what exactly we mean by German. Both participants and reporters frequently refer to the prevailing language of the Congress as Kongressdeutsch, a form of Yiddishized German, or perhaps Germanized Yiddish, which served as a surrogate language in the Babylonian setting of the Congress. German Zionist Heinrich Löwe asserted that Kongressdeutsch, quote, was extremely close to Hochdeutsch. On the other hand, some historians asserted that Kongressdeutsch was essentially Yiddish, or a highly Germanized form of Yiddish invented by East European delegates. <laughs> According to Yiddish scholar Nathan Ziskin, Kongressdeutsch was nothing but the recent manifestation of a longer phenomenon of Jewish speakers attempting to speak in, to speak in German while in fact speaking Yiddish. <laughs> By the same token, Yiddish linguist Judel Mark placed Kongressdeutsch within a longer tradition of attempts to refine Yiddish and bring it closer to proper German. Russian delegate Mordechai ben Hillela Kohen recalled how his compatriots could not participate in the first Congress discussions due to the language barrier. Only in the following years, after acquiring Kongressdeutsch, could they engage in the discussions. From this remark, it seems that Kongressdeutsch was indeed closer to German. Chaim Weizmann wrote that, quote, every Jew thought he knew German very well, but Herzl's German was not Kongressdeutsch, hence strengthening the view that Kongressdeutsch meant simple, unembellished German. According to a perceptive definition of an American Jewish journalist, a self-proclaimed speaker of Kongressdeutsch, it was, quote, neither German nor Yiddish, but a rather interesting conflict between the two. The different views of Kongressdeutsch indicate how, depending on the point of view of the speaker, Kongressdeutsch could mean German or Yiddish or both or none. It could serve as a means of communication and of miscommunication. It seems that for Yiddish speakers, Kongressdeutsch embodied the extent to which Yiddish could be modified so as to maximally approximate German. For German speakers, Kongressdeutsch embodied the extent to which German could be simplified so as to be comprehensible to Yiddish speakers. In both forms, Kongressdeutsch was not a clear linguistic entity, but a discursive site of interaction between the speakers of these languages. Moreover, through the use of this term, it was possible for Zionists to marginalize or even deny the widespread presence of Yiddish in the Congress. It was the rise of the Third Reich that gave the ambiguous role of Germany in the Congress as a most visible presence. In his opening speech as the president of the Zionist movement in the Congress held in Prague in, 19, in August 1933, Nahum Sokolov started by speaking in Hebrew, then announcing that his next words would be, quote, in the preferred international language of politics, French. This linguistic choice, uncommon until then in the Zionist Congress, had to do, according to one contemporary report, with the negative approach of the hosting country, Czechoslovakia, to the German language. Sokolov's choice also seemed to mark a latent realization that German, the language of Nazi Germany, could not be seen as a neutral, respectable language. An American delegate spoke forcefully on what he described as the shameful absence of Hebrew 
from the proceedings of the Congress and on the fact that the Congress's stenographical protocols were still printed in German. Hebrew writer Abraham Levinson called the movement's German-centeredness a sad tradition. As German was heard less and less in the Congress sessions, it was not only Hebrew, but also Yiddish, which re-emerged and gained temporary legitimacy as, the, as an alternative to German. Zionist leader and vehement anti-Yiddishist David Ben-Gurion gave, gave his speech in 1935 in Yiddish. In 1933, a Chicago-based Yiddish periodical declared, Congress Deutsch is no more, only Hebrew and Yiddish are spoken, adding that even German delegates had now to speak Yiddish. The reporter concluded that this should be seen not only as an achievement of the, of the Hebrew language, but also of Yiddish that was not encroached by the German language. In the 1935 Congress held in Lucerne, Hebrew became, quote, Hebrew became the official language in practice as well as in theory, as Israel Cohen put it. The history of German as a Zionist lingua franca seemed to come to an end. That said, Cohen's statement should be taken with a grain of salt not least because the question of how to describe the linguistic practice of the Congress was, more often than not, a matter of perspective, as was the, dis the distinction between German and English. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mark. Um, the next uh, paper is from Nick Underwood from the University of Colorado Boulder. Uh, he uh, finished his uh, PhD last year uh, with research on uh, Eastern European and Jewish immigrants in interwar Paris, and he's published a number uh, of articles on uh, Jewish cultures and spaces in Paris in the 1920s and 1930s. Yeah. So, thank you, David. And thank you, everyone, for being here and for inviting me and everyone else to be here. This has been a great com uh, conference so far. It's really fun to be in London, and it's fun to, to share some of these thoughts, which come from the dissertation and now book manuscript that I haven't written about formally before. Um, so this is an attempt to see if some of my ideas about the ways in which uh, Yiddish was imagined in interwar France um, have any legs. So, um, so we'll, we'll see. Um, it is impossible, at least perhaps for me, uh, not to think about Jewish and Yiddish culture as an integral part of interwar European history. And this includes Paris. During the 1930s, Paris became a hub for the fight against fascism, and among the cultures and communities that emerged in 1930s Paris, none was more visible than the Jewish immigrants who shaped anti-fascist culture through their prolific use of newspapers and theater groups to communicate ideology and community. Their political culture was characterized by anti-fascism and republicanism, and had a lasting impact on how Jewish immigrants placed themselves within the larger French political and cultural frameworks. By the mid-1930s, there were approximately 100 to 150,000 Jews from Eastern Europe living in Paris who spoke Yiddish, which was the language of Eastern European Jewry. Yiddish as a language dates to approximately the year 1000. It is a form of Middle High German, and it is the historic language of Ashkenazi, the Jews from Central and Eastern Europe, uh, Ashkenazi Jewry. It is primarily characterized as a synthesis of German with Hebrew and Aramaic, uh, and many linguists consider it a quote-unquote fusion language, meaning that when Jews moved to Eastern Europe from the German lands, Yiddish picked up Slavic components. And when Jews moved from Eastern Europe to France, Yiddish integrated some French words into, into its lexicon. Additionally, some scholars have suggested that during the post-Holocaust years, Yiddish shifted from a communicate, communicative, everyday language to what they term a post-vernacular Yiddish, 
where the language takes on symbolic functions and not necessarily a meaning of an everyday uh, language. This paper traces how Yiddish developed as an international and transnational language, becoming a marker for leftist cooperation and anti-fascism among Jews and non-Jews during the popular front years in Paris, roughly 1934 to 1938. Through a focus on the Parisian Yiddish theater troupe, known widely by their acronym PIAT, which stood for the Parisian Yiddish avant-garde theater, and the modern Jewish culture pavilion at the 1937 World's Fair in Paris. I will demonstrate how it was during the interwar years that Yiddish began its transformation towards post-vernacularity, as it went from a language specific to one community in Paris to a language that stood as a trans and international marker of the left and against the rise of fascism in interwar Western Europe. Resisting the urge to con consider Yiddish a post-vernacular language after World War II, this paper shifts our understanding of the interna internationalization of Yiddish from the post-war to the interwar years, demonstrating that understanding Yiddish was not required for those wanting to demonstrate and display a linguistically marked international anti-fascism. During the interwar years, for many, Yiddish had already begun to take on symbolic meaning. In 1934, Yiddish culture makers in Paris started Piat, which, like I said, was widely known uh, after 34 as the Parisian Yiddish avant-garde theater, but it was originally called the Parisian Yiddish uh, Workers Theater, and Yiddish avant-garde and, and workers, uh, it's the same letter, avant-garde and arbeter. From 1934 to 1940, Piat staged 27 plays, eight of them in 1938 alone. Approximately 250 people participated in the theater group, and their repertoire comprised revolutionary and Yiddishist drama, including works of Max Halba, Lev, Lev Tolstoy, Dovid Bergelsen, Moshe Kulbach, Chaim Levick, and Shalom Aleichem, the great famous Yiddish author. Piat comprised working women and men. Most, if not all of these actors, worked during the day and rehearsed during the evening. Rehearsals usually began around 9 o'clock. For most, theater was means for their national, but not economic, livelihood. Moshe Stark, for example, had worked at the, at the same plant for nearly 50 years, earning him a medal for his longevity with that company. And as Stark's uh, story indicates, Piat was made up of Jews who spent several waves of Eastern European Jewish immigration, which started around the turn of the century. By 1937, actors in Piat were unionized in the Union of Independent French Theaters and were affiliated with the Association of, uh, Association of Revolutionary Writers and Artists, um, Houses of Culture, or Maison de la Culture. 1937 was a key year in the development of interwar Yiddish culture in Paris. Piat was at its height, and, as, and at the World's Fair, as we will see, Yiddish culture makers developed a pavilion dedicated to modern Yiddish culture. 1937 is also an important year for our understanding of the internationalist symbolism that Yiddish took on during the interwar years. For the most part, the analysis in this paper sticks closely to events in 1937 and will, will branch out a little bit into 1938. In March 1937, Piat staged Shalom Aleichem's The Bewitched Tailor. Like other Piat productions, it was performed to much fanfare within the Parisian Yiddish press. What is remarkable, however, is the extent to which the French language press covered it. For example, the communist Cessois and the socialist Le Populaire, two widely read and circulated newspapers in interwar Paris, made note of and reviewed the production. These reviews indicate the extent to which Yiddish began to stand as a marker of internationalism for those affiliated with the left in France 
as well as the level of, uh, of integration leftist Yiddish speakers had made within French leftist circles. The non-Jewish, non-Yiddish speaking theater critic and author, Leon Musniak, reviewed the Bewitch Taylor for Sassoir on March 4, 1937. With a focus first on their social status, then on the artistic composition of the pro production, he wrote, Without special conditions, this amateur troupe occupied all day by their trade and equipped with rudimentary technique, we can already see that this young, enthusiastic, and persistent troupe, animated by a passion for theater and their national culture, had created with the Bewitched Taylor, an expressive and lively show with the dignified traditions of the most original Jewish theater. The director, David Licht, had adapted these elements that we admire in the performances previously presented in Paris by the State Jewish Theater of Moscow and a few years ago, and more recently by the Jewish Theater of New York and the Palestinian Theater. That is to say that Monsieur David Lich uses for the development of scenes a harmonious and comprehensive set of all the elements of expression of theater, decor, music, light, movement, gesture, diction. He made this crucial effort still too rare on our French scenes. Hopefully the theater Piat will have the definitive success it deserves. Its current qualities already establish it as a great professional theater. Musniak takes all the elements of Piat and integrates them into his review. He informs his reader about the structure of the group itself, i.e. that is made up of workers who happen to be amateur thespians. He also describes the artistic merits of the group highlighting the director David Licht with comparison to other international Yiddish theater groups who had recently visited Paris. Licht in the Interwar years was a well-known name in Yiddish theater. He was a former director um, uh, with the very, very uh, well-known and famous uh, Yiddish theater troupe, the Vilna troupe. Uh, he'd moved to Paris in 1933. Then after a short synopsis of the play, he highlights the Jewish, and we can understand this as national in the text, aspect of the aspect, and then connects that to the larger laudatory statement of how Piat had created true theater, which has all the qualities to become a great professional theater. For Musniak, highlighting the cultural contributions that Yiddish theater could have for the French theatrical world seemingly meant integrating Yiddish cultural output as a part of a larger, long-standing French, Republican, and perhaps in this context, anti-fascist presence. In October 1938, Piat staged David Bergelson's and David Bergelson's The Bread Mill. Bergelson was a prominent leftist and Jewish activist and considered one of the best communist Yiddish writers during the interwar period. The Bread Mill is a dark socialist realist drama in which Bergelson sets up a black and white conflict between labor and capital in a somewhat typical plot. We're probably all familiar with how this plays out. The mill owner's son seduces a deaf employee's pregnant daughter who kills herself. Her vengeful, vengeful father then leads a failed revolt of mill workers. And the deaf man, the story, on which Bergelson, uh, the story of Bergelson's on which the play is based, Bergelson depicts a worker's consciousness being obscured by the oppressive social order. And it is a tragedy of the creative folk in the bourgeois society in which he portrays the uncanny destructive act of a deaf worker turning his anger against the hapless Miller rather than his uh, real enemy, the capitalist exploiter. The playbill for the bread mill, the playbill for the bread mill, printed bilingually, and it was advertised in both French and Yiddish newspapers. These initiatives would lead to coverage in the French and Yiddish press. The Parisian Yiddish press uh, reviewed um, the bread mill favorably. 
as did the French press. For example, Magdalene Paz, a non-Jewish, non non-Yiddish speaker who was an activist for immigrant and refugee rights in France, wrote a review of the play for Le Populaire. She wrote reviews of lots of other plays as well. She wrote, I do not understand a word of Yiddish, but I was struck, moved, interested, and charmed by the new piece presented by Piat. While many nuances escaped me, the humor in particular, I have nonetheless been conquered by the powerful set that the director created with lighting, a set with an extraordinary sense of purpose, enhanced by the admirable interpretation. The lines of the play were incomprehensible to pause. She did not speak or understand Yiddish. But the theatrical components and the emotion conveyed by the actor's portrayal of the characters were worthy of note. Paz was able to follow the general plot of the play because the synopsis was written in French uh, in the playbill. The pain and the intensity of the play were all evident to Paz. Uh, she notes in the review that she looked around the room to see how people were responding and if they were laughing, she thought it was funny or that it was supposed to be funny. Um, to conclude though, Paz says, one here finds accents unknown elsewhere. In other words, within the theater, unknown accents, or more accurately, languages, because this is probably a reference to Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, in which accents means languages, it's a quote from Act Two of Julius Caesar, become known through intangible connections, connections between, between stage and audience that are made through the communication of emotion, allusions to history, and a nod to a shared overall and perpetual struggle, a theme that resonated with both, with both working class and Jewish sensibilities. Leon Muzniak and Magdalene Paz were, for one reason or another, engaged in reviewing and describing Yiddish theater in Paris to their readers during the, 19, during the late 1930s. Muzniak and Paz's coverage of Yiddish theater gives us a better understanding of how some critics interpreted Yiddish theater in Paris and how they placed it within the larger French theatrical scene. Language, or at the very least the content uh, or meaning of the words did not really matter, but the staging, lighting, direction, and acting did, and perhaps even just simply being there. In this analysis of hers and others' engagement with Yiddish theater in Paris, we see how their consideration of Yiddish theater could be understood as part of a larger attempt to tie immigrant and French cultural productions together. Given the highly political context in which each review was placed, we are able to more clearly see the intersections between art and politics. Also, given the political affiliations between both Piat and the newspapers in which they were reviewed, we can also understand this engagement as potentially having something to do with the larger interwar French anti-fascist community. The language may be incomprehensible, but the artistic and political contributions, contributions that Piat made towards creating a transnational and leftist milieu were not. In 1937, Paris once again hosted the World's Fair. Unique to this fair was the inclusion of one particular pavilion, the Modern Jewish Culture Pavilion. In essence, it was a pavilion developed by Yiddish-speaking leftists, uh, Yiddish-speaking leftist Jews in Paris about the history of Yiddish culture and the Jewish workers' movement. Key for our, understa key for our understanding of Yiddish as a language of internationalism in interwar Paris was how the World's Fair administration interpreted the participation of Yiddish-speaking Jews at the fair which added anti-fascist symbolism to the language and those who spoke it. It should be noted that there was also other Jewish participation in the fair, um, namely uh, the Land of Israel and Palestine Pavilion, who had actually, uh, this pavilion had appeared at previous World's Fair. The Modern Jewish Culture Pavilion was the first of its kind. The Modern Jewish Culture Pavilion cost three, 8, 000, uh, roughly 8,000 francs to construct, 
and was 335 square meters, or about 3,600 square feet in size, and was part of the larger International Pavilion, which was about 6,000 square meters, or 64,000 square feet. The idea behind the International Pavilion was that it could provide space in the form of booths or stalls where countries could display materials that they could not fit into their larger pavilion. Uh, Albania, Denmark, the Dominican Republic, Spain, Ger uh, Great Britain, Poland, the Soviet Union, Romania, and the modern Jewish culture pavilion's neighbors, Nazi Germany, all took advantage of the extra room provided by the International Pavilion. It was located in the Champ de Mars, not far from the Eiffel Tower. The Modern Jewish Culture Pavilion was a vivid display of Yiddish culture. And on August 1st, 1937, World's Fair internal report reads, the following sections will find their place in the pavilion. The Jewish press, immigration, arts, science, teaching standards, the organization of public utility, etc. As for the Jewish Scientific Institute in Vilna, treasures of great historic value are gathered and displayed. More than 8,000 Yiddish newspapers are there, hundreds of value, uh, valuable manuscripts. As for the Jews themselves, this exhibition will be a call for a renewal of activity full of courage, despite and against the stifling atmosphere and material poverty of the Jewish people. The World's Fair administration seemingly laid out a two-part mandate for the pavilion. First, the pavilion was to display a wide range of Jewish culture to non-Jews, placing, placing Jews within a global and national framework. Second, the pavilion was to activate an increase in anti-fascist acti activism among Jews themselves. As shown with Magdalene Paz's coverage of Piat, a fundamental part of the Popular Front initiative in France among some leftists was to increase understanding among the French of Jewish cultural contributions to France. The World's Fair followed this cultural and social imperative and made special note of the meaning of Jewish involvement in the exposition, saying, quote, the 1937 International Exposition in Paris is enriched by the participation in particular of one section, the Modern Jewish Culture Pavilion. The Paris of Tageszeitung, the German language exile newspaper in, in Paris, further illuminates the context uh, and content of the pavilion, highlighting some of what is on the walls. I'm going to skip some of this just for the, the sake of time. The Populaire's report was simul similar in that it described what was within the, within the pavilion and said, during a time where racism and anti-Semitism tend to flourish worldwide, the pavilion of modern Jewish culture takes the moral high ground. The international reports from the World's Fair and the French and German language press highlight the suffering, racism, and anti-Semitism of the period. By placing the importance of the pavilion with the context of international racism and anti-Semitism, these reports situate the modern Jewish culture pavilion in an explicitly international framework. The World's Fair considered the pavilion as part of the international pavilion, despite the fact that it was Jews living in Paris who had played a fundamental role in creating it. This placement, however, could have been easily determined by practical considerations more than any comment on how they saw a Yiddish-speaking Jews place within the French society. For example, the Yiddish-speaking Jews approached the uh, World's Fair very, very late, very, very late about developing this uh, pavilion. Unlike the French language cover coverage of Piat, the German and French language co coverage of the World's Fair did not place the pavilion with the French Jewish cultural scene. Rather, it stressed its place within a larger pan-European Jewish culture. By comparison, coverage within the Parisian Yiddish language press, most notably the Naya press of the communist Yiddish language daily newspaper in Paris, however made it clear that the connection to Paris and in turn France was as important to understanding the larger importance of the pavilion. Non-Jewish, non-Yiddish speaking cultural activists and, and culture makers paid close attention to what some Jews in France were doing in Yiddish. 
Seemingly interpreting Yiddish as a post-vernacular language of internationalism, if not simply of the left, French leftists such as Leon Musniak, Magdalene Paz, and high-ranking officials from the World's Fair Administration sought to position Yiddish and Yiddish culture as a way to understand the struggle against the rise of fascism in Europe. For these leftists, Yiddish represented an aspect of one of the many French Jewish communities that they felt might speak to their internationalist and French cultural projects. Yiddish was also means through which one could support the Jews of France. By highlighting their cultural contributions to larger French productions, either the larger French theatrical scene or the World's Fair itself, these critics also sought to include Yiddish-speaking Jews and France as part of the cultural front against fascism that many involved with the popular front in France advocated. Yiddish was celebrated as part of a domestic French cultural project and then embedded into a cultural form of anti-fascism which had internationalist inter implications. At the center of this stood the repositioning of Yiddish as a symbolic cultural marker for the left and the, Yidd and the European struggle against fascism. Yiddish the language may have been incomprehensible to some, but Yiddish the symbol clearly resonated with many as a marker of internationalism and during the late 1930s, uh, during the late 1930s in Paris, anti-fascism. Thank you. So our, our final paper is from um, Carmen Manjin. Carmen is a lecturer in modern history here at uh, Beck, uh, and her work focuses on the cultural and social history of gender and religion in 19th and 20th century Britain and Ireland, and she's written and edited uh, a number of excellent books on women, religious, convents, and Catholic women. Carmen. Thank you very much. And just um, in terms of terminology, um, when I use the words convent and house, I use them interchangeably, just as they are in the documents. Um, and also when I use the words um, mother superior, general superior, mother general, this is reflecting the, the, um, the leader of a female congregation. Just, um, so to begin with, um, Catholic religious institutes of sisters and nuns have been founding communities across the globe for several thousand years. The foundation of new communities and the crossing of national boundaries were not unusual features of these religio-cultural networks. International expansion was significant to these modes of religious life, but their religious internationalism is rarely acknowledged. This paper shall examine the shift to an internationalist identity, examining one aspect of internationalism, and that's language. And by language, I mean both the language as a means of communication as well as a language, a language as cultural specificity. In the 19th century, the almost undisputed principle of unity as uniformity reigned supreme in centralized women's religious institutes. The language of the founder and the first convent, typically the mother house, was the de facto lingua franca. The concept of a shared language was considered an important feature of unity. From the 1940s, an engagement with modernity and the introduction of pluriformity, which is an embracing of a pluralism of national Catholicisms, introduced a rethinking of communication <laughs> practices. Experimentation ensued and included use of multiple languages, translators, and a shift to a new language as a shared language. This paper examines how the politics of governance influenced linguistic practices from the 1830s to the 1970s in two sections, first addressing the perceived benefits of shared language and then identifying the changing government governance and the complexity of alternative linguistic practices. 
So this talk examines how internationalism was defined, lived, and experienced, framing internationalism as a means of creating international identities and to reform society and politics by ways of transnational cooperation and the process of internationalizing cultural, political, and economic practices. And very much so, I'm focusing on this first bit of the, of the definition, so this idea of creating international identities. Academics have often interpreted internationalism as a liberal and secular project, thus, according to historian Vincent Vianney, ignoring religion, quote, because it did not really fit their preconceptions about what a public sphere should look like. Religious internationalism was significant to the reframing of religious identities on a world stage. Vianney, in his explanation of the Catholic International, linked the decline of the Roman Catholic Church's influence in local and national politics to the globalization of the Catholic Church. The Church's concerted efforts to strengthen religious identities and reassert power was demonstrated by stronger church hierarchies, increased doctrinal focus, and a more structured devotional culture. Vianney argued that the threat of secularization focused identities and discipline structures, multiplying and mobilizing the force of organized religion. And religious life fits neatly into both the broader understanding of international, inter, internationalism and this narrower Catholic international. From the 19th century, the transnational engine of the Catholic international was the armies of male and female religious that traversed the globe to recruit and form good Catholics via the building of a Catholic infrastructure of schools and hospitals. The crossing of national borders was a usual feature of these networked religious communities. So this is a case study of one congregation, the Sisters of Charity of Our Lady Mother of Mercy, which you will be happy to say, to know I will now call it the Dutch Sisters of Charity, just for short, shortness, brevity. Um, they're founded in Tilburg in the Netherlands in 1832 by the clergyman Joanne, uh, Joanna Zweissen, along with Mother Michael Lason. And they were one of the many religious institutes that were integral to developing a cohesive Catholic educational and social welfare structure in the Netherlands. Their growth in the Netherlands was nothing less than meteoric. 27 foundations were, founded, uh, were made in the first 20 years. By 1900, there were 80 convents in the Netherlands, an additional 15 in Belgium, England, the United States, Indonesia, and Suriname. These convents employed 2,200 professed sisters. By 1964, 3,400 professed sisters resided in 104 convents. Such growth was aided in part by the breadth of their ministry. They acted as administrators, teachers, nurses, ma managed parish schools, large hospitals, and specialist schools. They became one of the Netherlands' largest women's congregations. Zweisen, by all accounts, was an authoritative ecclesiastical superior who involved himself in most decision-making. His authority far surpassed Laysen's despite her role as Mother Superior, but after his death, worldwide activities were managed centrally from the Mother House by female superior, Mother Superiors in Tilburg. From 18, uh, in 1861, the congregation made their first foundation in Britain in Pantasif, Wales. This foundation began with an orphanage in Pantasif, then expanded as the number of sisters increased to include managing board and parish schools and a hospital in Preston. They managed a very small congregation. Uh, they remained a very small congregation in England and Wales, opening three convents in the 19th century and employing 76 professed sisters throughout this period. Of approximately two-thirds were English uh, or Irish, uh, and the rest were uh, Dutch. 
In the 20th century, they added three more houses, but at their largest, they were 100 sisters. So I'm working with these two, both the mother house and the daughter house in England, and, and their relationships. But you can see that the Netherlands is, is rather huge compared to um, the convents in Britain. Zweisen's emphasis on unity was an important theme in his conferences and correspondence and enshrined in congregations' governance documents. His insecurities on the disruption of unity was in part a result of his fears regarding the unwelcome uh, advances of liberalism in the Netherlands, but also a means of maintaining control over an expanding congregation. This was in line with developments within the Roman Catholic Church from the 1870s when it was becoming more bureaucratized and more centralized, wresting power from the national churches in favor of papal power. Zweisen stressed unity as a key means of maintaining control. And this is the quote that is often used um, in, in uh, talking about unity. Unity in purpose, unity in spirit, unity in administration, unity in following the rule, unity in behavior. In one word, unity in everything, everywhere and at all times. So as you can see with this, this is not some kind of vague, airy-fairy kind of unity. This is a very, very much grounded in a physical and material uniformity that was to be dictated by the mother house in Tilburg. This preoccupation in unity was not in itself unusual. The pattern of 19th century religious life was one that endorsed unity as a means of maintaining tradition and control. And language was a critical constituent of this unity. The Dutch language was the language of the congregation within the Netherlands as well as all outlying convents. Postulants until the 1960s were sent to Tilburg for their novitiate and were instructed in the Dutch language. Within British convents of the Dutch Sisters of Charity, Dutch was necessary to, partic to participate in the spiritual life of the convent. All prayers and meditations and reading material were in Dutch. Some British sisters did become fluent in Dutch. At least 17 of them worked in convents in the Netherlands. But not everyone learned Dutch, uh, the language, with ease, and there was an unevening, unevenness in linguistic proficiency. In 1937, the first English-born superior in Preston, Bernadette Shepherd, did not attend the annual retreat in Tilburg, quote, on account of the difficulties with the language. Language was not the only form of conformity, I don't, you can't, probably can't see it very well, but also material culture and customs of British um, convent life um, replicated that in the Dutch convent. So you can see here is, um, and this is from the, um, there's a little museum in the uh, mother house in Tilburg where the archives are, and the tableware, um, the beds, as well as the religious habit were all identical. So whether you were in Indonesia or the Netherlands or England or Pantasif, you'd eat on the same tableware. It was all very rigorously controlled. Um, in England, they also celebrated Dutch national events. So such uniformity was imagined as the glue to unity that was unquestioned by the leadership and the sisters of the congregation. And again, Unity as uniformity was not unique to the Dutch Sisters of Charity. It was a ubiquitous characteristic of centralized women's congregations. And there were practical reasons for this tenacious emphasis on uniformity. It eased the load of managing such large international organizations, particularly at a time when communication relied on correspondence. It was an important means of affirming corporate identity, which had a particular spirituality and essence that was seen as unchanging. It also expanded personal identity. 
When sisters were moved uh, from, by the mother house from one community to another, it reduced some of the burden of assimilation and encouraged personal as well as corporate stability. Uniformity strengthened connection with easily imagined communities. Importantly, unity as uniformity was offered as a means of subsuming national tensions by supposedly removing national identities. And these quotes aren't actually from this particular group, but they are very much representative of this idea of unity as, as removing national identity. So you can see here, there are also sisters of many nationalities, but once they enter the convent, they're neither French nor English nor Irish, they're Franciscan or whatever their identity was. These statements were part of a discourse reflected in sermons and conferences of both enclosed and active religious institutes that explained that those who entered the communities left behind their national identities when they crossed the convent threshold. National identity, according to this diktat, disappeared and was replaced by the identity of a particular religious family to which a sister or nun belonged. And this was one particular facet of the internationalism of religious institutes that featured in the 19th century and lasted to the mid-20th century. Of course, despite this denial of nationality, uniform, uniformity, of course, was attached to a very particular national identity. Now, the Dutch Sisters of Charity are in many ways an anomaly. It was rare for an international religious congregation to have such an overwhelming numerical dominance of one culture. Um, and in, in some ways, it was an extreme case of Dutch cultural dominance and spiritual, spiritual uh, superiority. Some international congregations, like the Society of the Sacred Heart, encouraged integration into their host cultures. But as with the Daughters of Charity, you know, all sisters were expected to know French, and convents all over the world maintained some French customs, and there was a distinctively French superiority in regards to spirituality. So, Religious institutes became international as a result of their expansion strategies. Unlike many of the organizations discussed in women's internationalist histories, like the work of Leila Rupp or Christine van Oortsen, they did not consist of national organizations that came together under an international umbrella with internationalist aims. Their internationalism was a byproduct of growth rather than a purposeful coming together. They were transnational actors with various cultural identities, but with a self-understanding that was authoritatively linked to their mother house. And language was one of the key means of asserting this cultural dominance and spiritual superiority. So what I'll move to next are the changes that occurred in most religious institutes after 1940, when this model of uniformity, uh, unity as uniformity, was no longer tenable. So language provided a means of unity for cultural dominance, but also dominance in terms of governance. The language of interaction between the Dutch mother house and the British communities was Dutch. Government chapter meetings where congregation decisions were made were only accessible to Dutch speakers. Leadership positions in British convents were held by Dutch sisters until the 1930s. The pool of potential local leaders was limited to those who spoke Dutch with some fluency. By the 1960s, the Dutch Sisters of Charity were openly discussing the cracks found in the unity of uniformity. They suggested that the inward bond between sisters was lacking. In her commentary, uh, in her commentary of the 1964 chapter, which was an international meeting, the General Superior, Wilhelm de Jong, remarked, 
We learn to do everything in the same way, and again, describing some of the things that uh, I'd mentioned. But then she ends pointing to, uniformity does not always mean that there exists an inward bound, uh, inward bound bond. Um, so in their search for a more authentic relational means of unity, the general council questions the terms of an international that relied on uniformity to Dutch traditions and one language. Uniformity was rejected in favor of a unity that emphasized cultural difference and linked to a new understanding of internationalism related to pluriformity. Now this term had developed in a very different context out of discussions of the tensions between independence of local Catholic churches and the Holy See's insistence on uniformity. Its cautious unveiling in early conciliar text reflected an awareness of a unity in, of religious plurality with local Catholic identities embedded in indigenous cultural traditions, customs, and rituals. So pluriformity offered a volte face after almost two centuries of centralizing legislation, emphasizing uniformity. It, suggests that, it suggested that interchange, uh, unchangeable faith could be achieved through different cultural traditions and acknowledge national Catholicisms. This new discourse of pluriformity was embraced by the Dutch Sisters of Charity as they began transforming the international, internal dynamics of their organization. And this, um, none of what I'm speaking about, these changes were not without real internal tensions and real disagreements and a lot of passive aggressive behavior throughout, um, as well as aggressive behavior. So, you know, it was quite, um, so it, the discourse sounds really straightforward, but it's not at all. Unity on a deeper spiritual level, it was, it was explained, could be found in pluriformity. We leave more room for pluriformity. We should encourage each province and region to be more Dutch, more American, more Indonesian, etc. Theoretically, this offered flexibility in line with national preferences. In the general chapter of 1964, uh, General Superior Wilhelm de Jong suggested that African sisters could sing the litany in honor of Our Lady rather than say the rosary. Sister Therese Quant, writing in 1972, uh, identified with the significance of pluriformity by explaining solidarity in pluriformity. Language was an important constituent of pluriformity. The language of official documents changed. No longer were all congregation documents issued, issued in Dutch. They were now translated into English, French, and Indonesian. English letters addressed to provincial superiors would be accompanied by Dutch translations. By the late 1970s, the English language became the recommended language of governance, although that lasted just a few years, um, and they went back to this multi multiple languages. New governance structures were needed to reflect this revised understanding of internationalism. From its foundation in 1832, the General Council of Dutch Sisters of Charity consisted of the Superior General and her Council of Four residing in Tilburg. This was a very simple, direct, top-down authoritative hierarchy without any intermediate layers of authority. The new internationalism, with its emphasis on pluriformity, required more consultation and participation from Dutch and non-Dutch sisters and resulted in new ways of governance. The key means of instituting consultative governance was through decentralization. So what you see is this development of provinces um, and the provinces 
worked in the local language and managed the formation of their own postulants and novices, financial administration, and daily living. The division into provinces was meant to encourage a more cultural expression, um, uh, uh, more cultural expression of religious life. And again, you know, because every person, and this is again out of chapter reports, and every country should then show itself to better advantage. In short, every country has its diversity of possibilities, which must be given a chance to develop. What is significant about this new internationalism was that its expression was reliant on the national. Much of the historiography of international institutions indicates they developed from national groups which united to achieve particular aims. International religious congregations operated differently. The internationalism of a congregation like the Dutch Sisters of Charity was originally reliant on one national culture. The new internationalism required a reintroduction of the national culture, customs, and language, and a reinterpretation of corporate objectives to meet the needs of the local national convenience. So to conclude, the Sisters of Charity of Our Lady Mother of Mercy in the 1940s began the process of recreating a corporate international identity that was based on unity in diversity. It moved away from a Dutch-centric model of uniformity and authoritarianism that did not seem viable in the modern age. Language was originally embedded in social structures as well as modes of governance and both helped and hindered the unity of female religious institutes. The Dutch language as the official language was questioned in, from the 1960s as more sisters were expected to participate in decision-making at all levels of governance. The mother house had a central role in promulgating internationalism and in a sense nationalism. Internationalism promoted national convenience and the rise of local power. The mother house though remained the site where knowledge was produced and where policies were developed, negotiated, influenced and disseminated. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, to all the speakers. Three very interesting uh, papers on three very different themes. Um, I just wanted to start by trying to kind of draw together some of the themes and suggest some kind of shared uh, interests for the paper. So one uh, obvious one seems to be the question of uh, religion and language and internationalism, which is obviously important in Carmen's paper, also in Mark's paper, to a certain extent, is maybe kind of a hidden uh, part of, uh, of Nick's paper. Um, and to a certain extent, it seems that these religious communities are facing the same problems that of all of the other communities that we've, we've been looking at, so kind of you know, expert communities and activists and all of these kind of things. So I'm, I'm wondering what's uh, unique about uh, religion when we're in terms of uh, languages and internationalism. One of the, the things uh, that came out of Carmen's paper seems to be this uh, idea of um, a certain... Uh, religious conception of internationalism built on uh, an idea of uh, the unity of uh, a community under God or a spiritual unity of community which is different from some of the other secular groups that we've seen. But then also thinking particularly about language, you've also got the issue of, uh, of kind of the core uh, languages of each of the religions we're talking about. So Hebrew obviously which, uh, which Mark talked about which has a kind of an ambiguous position within these international conferences. Um, and Latin, presumably, for uh, Catholic communities, although that didn't come up in your paper. It'd be interesting to know what position Latin played in, in these kind of uh, things. Uh, it also struck me that, like a lot of the other papers, that, uh, um, a lot of what we're talking about uh, is uh, lack of understanding in these kind of international um, 
context and misunderstanding. And so particularly, again, we have in, in Mark's paper a kind of an international conference, which is kind of the core of internationalist and transnationalist history, which we write about all the time, and which we think of as the kind of these uh, exemplars of international understanding. But actually, when it comes down to it, what you have is a lot of people coming together and often through reasons of languages, not being able to communicate with each other and not being able to stand each, <coughs> understand each other or arguing with each other because they speak different languages. Um, in, I, I was interested in this, this issue in terms of a Yiddish in Paris and the kind of the contrary idea that you can, uh, if you're an anti-fascist, you can understand uh, what's going on in these Yiddish plays even if you don't speak Yiddish you know, in, in actual fact. I suppose there's something there about the language of theatre and the language of, of art as well. Um, and again, interesting that the response uh, in some of these cases is a uh, is, uh, a kind of linguistic mixing or linguistic fusion. You talked about how Yiddish is a language of linguistic fusion anyway, but I love this idea of Congress Deutsch as a kind of language which no one knows what it is. It might be a bit Yiddish, it might be a bit German, uh, which presumably only existed in these kind of very marginal settings. It reminds me slightly of this, uh, of the international sign language uh, that we were talking about uh, yesterday. Um, and then obviously we have the changing meaning of, uh, of languages over time. So the German that goes from a kind of uh, uh, respectable language within international uh, Jewish organizations to one that's kind of persona non grata, and you have English as a marginal language in Catholic uh, religious communities that then briefly becomes their, the, you know, the main language of decolonization. So all of these uh, language identities, none of them are fixed more than a change of time. Yiddish as well, from a, again a kind of central but in some ways uh, marginalized uh, language of Jewish internationalism to the core of Jewish anti-fascism in uh, so I'll open up to questions. We'll take two at a time, and, and, and last one will be back. So uh, Jessica, yeah. Just a quick comment, really. Um, I thank you very much, all three of you. I, I particularly love um, the implication of Carmen's paper, which picks up on something that we discussed yesterday uh, about this idea of language uh, or shared language as a progressive ideal. Uh, uh, because what, what comes out very clearly in the early part of your of your discussion, Carmen, is that language is very much an expression of and a tool for uniformity. For for management. I think this is a really useful way of exploring just um, the, the kind of various ideological and political contexts of language, which goes very much kind of along the lines of what we've been trying to do as a group of internationalism. We can talk about that more tomorrow, but I thought that was a really useful way of making sense. Yeah. I have two comments, special questions, and I'm directly on, on Jessica's point. I was struck, especially when Carmen showed us photos of uh, so essentially, and, and in, this, um, in its initial phases, like the action, the effort to create an international community is actually by imposing the formula, which is completely kind of counterintuitive to how we think about internationalism, right? Um, and I was wondering, from I was wondering, is there a relationship between language and empire? And in the sense, I mean, the Dutch have have notoriously this kind of multinational empire. So I'm wondering whether there is a relationship between, say, how Dutch Catholic orders kind of can spread around the world, whether, whether their practices are similar to the Dutch imperial practices in the sense of treating language, engaging with, uh, with local populations, etc. And in broadly, if you can speak to kind of the relationship between national imperial projects and then kind of international religious projects that start in these national projects. Does that make sense? I have like a very small question for Mark. So are there non, like, 
I mean, non-Yiddish-speaking Jews participating at these events. And if not, because presumably at some point, you know, the Ladino speakers and the Arabic speakers do join the, the Zionist movement. So what happens when there are these very you know, different cultural movements that come together? Carmen, you'll start. I shall, and I may forget something. So um, do remind me if I don't answer everything. Um, the Dutch case is very particular, and in a way, I, I don't, I like using it because it's just so stark, but in a way, it's not like my other case studies. Um, and it is very much related to, I mean, you're quite right, the, their identities as colonizers um, and their history there and their imperial histories. It, but it, it's in this case, too, it's related to the fact that numerically there are more Dutch women in the congregation. Because when I looked at the Society of the Sacred Heart, which is a French congregation, they have a much more global reach. Um, and while they, their spirituality, they consider it very French, I mean, and the language of the congregation is very French, when they send, when they open houses, when they open convents in various places, they tell their sisters, they send first off sisters of three or four nationalities, they tell their sisters, okay, you need to become a part of the culture, you need to take on some of the, despite the fact that they still require the French language, you know, within the convent, um, the leaders, the convent superiors will need to know French. Um, the spirituality is French, some of the customs are French, but they still require, you know, some, um, you know, integration with the, you know, with the context of the country they're in. The, the Dutch Sisters of Charity just don't do that. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, because of course it does, um, um, but, um, but they are very insistent that Dutch ways are the, are the best ways. Um, and uh, yeah, and it's very much, a f and, and this is whether it's England, whether it's Indonesia, whether it's the United States, and the United States, there's quite a bit of uproar about this. Um, and there are changes that happen in the US convents that don't happen elsewhere uh, much earlier. So there is, a, there is pushback. Um, so so it's, it's, it's related to their, also their religious history. You know, they have these different pillars in the Netherlands, what they call pillars. So you've got a Protestant world, you've got a Catholic world, and, and, and these worlds don't meet. And they're very, within the Netherlands, they're very separate. You know, Protestants have their own newspapers, their own trade unions, their own schools, their own hospitals, same with Catholics, their own trade unions, you know, all these things. It's, it's, um, it's part of their larger history, which is what makes them a bit different. Sorry, I think I'll stop in okay. case. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. There was a fair number of uh, non-Yiddish speakers, and in this sense, even if Yiddish had been given some kind of official status uh, as a language of communication, it would not have really solved uh, the problem, because in either constellation, some group would, would have been uh, uh, marginalized or silenced, literally. Uh, in the case of, uh, of, of like of Ladino speakers, we have there were. I mean, it was never a significant number. I mean, both because of demographic reasons and because the Zionist uh, uh, ideology was not extremely popular, at least not in, in these uh, decades. But there were delegates either from uh, from from Yemen or from Morocco, uh, from the Sephardi community of, of Palestine. And, uh, and usually they, they spoke in Hebrew uh, or, or in French in, in some instances, but yeah, they, they, they don't really appear in, in the protocols when it comes to the big, uh, to the big debates that were held in, in German. Yeah. Uh, 
You mentioned um, at one point in your paper that some of these theater artists um, were thinking rather explicitly about their counterparts in Palestine and also New York City. And I was struck just thinking throughout your entire paper at how Soviet a lot of the symbolic deployment of Yiddish was. And so I wondered um, if you could speak more to whether there were actual transnational cultural connections going on. And I'll just add one, one larger point because um, that's related. My earlier project was about Roma and Soviet nationality policy, right? Because the Soviet Union was managing its multi-ethnicity and trying to Sovietize the entire population, but doing so by encouraging um, expressions of national culture. So here you have the Yiddish theater in Moscow, for example. But I was struck even more explicitly at how this case, your case in Paris, was so similar to the case of the Moscow State Gypsy Theater, which the Soviets would be very upset if I did not tag on the line, the first and only in the world. <laughs> um, but to be brief about it, um, when this theater was created in, in 1930, uh, the actors and actresses were, by official nationality, uh, gypsies, but many of them did not speak any of the Romani dialects. They were Russian speakers through and through, or Ukrainian speakers at some time happened. So what you had was, on its face, just a kind of seeming absurdity that you would have gypsy speakers, uh, performers going on a Moscow stage and articulating what they're being told is uh, authentic Romani language, but they can't understand what they themselves are speaking. The whole point was to symbolically um, transmit the message of going from the backwardness of a pre-revolutionary past to the, the, the bright Soviet future, right? To revisit a theme I was talking about yesterday. So, all of that to be said, I wonder if you could um, satisfy me with curiosity about if there were real conversations taking place across all of these borders. Can I just have one of that? Because I was struck there is, I found at the same time in Mexico, the Revolutionary Artists and Writers League, which is a popular front organization doing all of these same things and making these indigenous, these gestures towards indigenismo. And I, so, sorry, you already really know that. <laughs> so, yeah, and they're, they're all connected, right? I mean, that's one of the interesting things about the, the Yiddish world is that Yiddish, on some level, is already an international language, right? Because Yiddish speakers are all over the world. They're writing for each other's newspapers. You know, the correspondents that are in Paris are writing for the Yiddish newspaper in Buenos Aires. They're writing for New York. Uh, they're writing in Warsaw, Vilna. But uh, so yes, this is kind of all over. But more to your point, so the Moscow, the the the, the Yiddish theater from Moscow that is mentioned in the newspaper is a state theater from the Soviet Union. It is state uh, constructed Yiddish culture during the Soviet Union. Um, so and it's absolutely in line exactly what you're saying is that there is this kind of like state um, uh, structure to kind of build up a Yiddish cultural life. That being said, what's interesting, I think, about the way that this is referenced in this particular piece, I think, goes to like the way that I interpret at least what's happening in, in France, and you can afterwards tell me if I, whether or not I'm actually answering your question, is, um, is the, the layers of the, like Yiddish theater that are being played on, put on top of each other here that are being referenced. So there's the Yiddish theater from New York that is supposed to be referencing the avant-garde art theater. It's called the Yiddish art theater that comes to, to Paris. The Moscow State Yiddish theater is one 
the Moscow State Yiddish Theater, so it has kind of gravitas within, within the left because it's Soviet-based. But also, Mark Chagall was the one who was painting the stage productions for the Moscow State Theater before he moved to Paris. So you automatically now are tying the Moscow State Yiddish Theater back to Paris because it's an unknown reference to Mark Chagall's artistic, artistic integration into the Yiddish world, which he doesn't really involve himself in Paris. There's actually a lot of writing in Piat, about Piat, that talks about why aren't the artists in Paris creating sets for our theater like they did when they were in, in, in Russia. Um, so yes, the, the, the referencing of all these theaters is, as I think, overlaying what I see functioning as kind of like this this interesting relationship between the art and the politics, because it is very politicized, but also there's something very, there's very something clearly being played with in terms of the artistic component of it, right? This, the, the fact that this is somehow avant-garde is very important, especially with people like Musniak, who is writing, uh, he writes a lot about new French theater and the way that French theater ought to be engaged by presenting very, uh, in the forefront, all the different elements that can be put on stage. You know, we take for granted that lighting and decor and costume is just supposed to be kind of like inherently part of a the theater, but in France during the interwar period, this is something that is, it's, it's, it's termed at the time the, the complete spectacle of theater, and all of these things are highlighted as elements that you can see at the theater, like on the playbills, who did the music? That's important, and that's actually new at that time. So there's this overlay of, of the different kind of artistic and political components of Yiddish theater like really being encapsulated in really two paragraphs. I don't know, uh, Bridget, if that actually answers your question, but yes. <laughs> uh, this is sort of a continuation of this discussion, actually. So I was sitting here thinking this reminds me an awful lot uh, of the uh, theater of sign and gesture, which is the Moscow-based sign language theater. <laughs> <laughs> the first and only in the world. <laughs> For about two years, it was the first. Um, but I was, I was trying to think through as you were speaking, I think this is really fascinating, that this issue of the theatre of quote-unquote marginal communities being reviewed by people not from that community who don't speak the language and being forcibly praised. And on the one hand, you, you spoke really eloquently about how that sort of creates a sense of togetherness and, and internationalism and linking across languages, but also there's quite problematic aspect to that, right? Um, I mean, you, have, you had in the 1960s uh, people's artists of, of the USSR coming to the Southern Language Theatre and saying, I didn't understand, obviously, the language at all, but I felt something. And I, you know, I, I, I understood what was being what was being put out there. And, and the deaf uh, actors in the community saying, our language isn't intuitable. <laughs> it's not, we don't, we don't just, it's not mine. You should, you know, if you actually want to understand what we're saying, you need to have this interpreted as a matter of respect. And I'm wondering if that was also a dimension of what the frame was here too. Can I just tag on to that uh, again? <laughs> With no specific example, perhaps, but it struck me as a parallel between Mark's paper and Nick's uh, that people are so, I mean, the people you're talking about are so willing and open to thinking about language as a kind of an abstraction, which is as an entity that's actually divested from linguistic terms. Uh, so in Mark's case, you have this kind of most stable definition of what Kongesdeutsch is. And then in Yiddish theater, language is not at all necessary to understand, which goes back to uh, your point earlier. So I'm wondering, and that maybe is the continuation of the question before, 
is there pushback from the inside? Is there an attempt to make it more lingual, to bring it back to linguistic terms, to say, you know, you really need to understand, not just to kind of mystically absorb the gist, but to actually get what is going on. And I was thinking in Mark's case, there's this Papiernisdeutsch concept that's used in Prague, for Prague German, and it's connected to Zionist circles because it's this um, dialectless of German that's already very international because it's you know a crossing of different Prague cultures. Uh, and I'm wondering if that gets absorbed in any way. There's a dialogue there. Mark, you want to start off with that? Um, yeah, I mean there is a, a parallel tradition of uh, of like uh, some kind of you know certain adjectives or, or, or parts in which German is. Uh, Compromise. So there is the there is example that you give, and also a Zeitungsdeutsch, which was also a derogatory term, term uh, for what uh, um, let's say uh, non-eloquent speakers do to the German language in in the Weimar period. Karl Kraus wrote an article against uh, against those who use this kind of you know uh, overly simple German that kind of destroys the the legacy. Uh, so there is a pushback, but it, it was not really. Uh, viable in the in the in the setting of the Congress because uh, Germans had from the very start some kind of you know uh, inferiority conf complex because of their inability to speak any Jewish language. So in this respect, they, uh, I mean, of course, the, it was it made it made sense on many levels to to use German because it gave it some kind of international resonant resonance and to make uh, Zionism an inter international uh, movement and also a movement that would draw the attention. Of the German Empire, that was uh, uh, one of the only uh, hopes uh, in, in terms of uh, gaining some kind of sponsorship or support. So, so yeah, the communicative uh, aspect was was often there, but it but it, uh, it but it could not be defended ideologically. I mean, in this sense, it was always uh, limited and uh, kind of constrained. So, so I've actually been thinking. I think to your question, Claire. A, there's yes and no. And the reason I say a little bit of both is, well, one, because I've never, I, haven't, I don't have access to a lot of what the, the pr producers and the actors actually wrote about these reviewers coming to see them. So I have no sense of how they responded themselves directly to it. However, based on other reports and the way that the Yiddish community, at least on the left, was trying to integrate themselves among French leftists, I would say that they probably appreciated the support more so than the um, inability to understand the text or the performances. And I wonder if on some level they understood them, like the Magdalene Paz and uh, Muzniak coming to one of their performances as maybe going to see opera if you don't understand Italian or German and you just kind of wanting to do something uh, you know, kind of artistic for the evening. I wonder if perhaps there's a little bit, a little bit to that. Um, so, and I'm blank, I'm, I'm so sorry. I, what is, what uh, Yulia. Yeah, Yulia. And so to, to Yulia's point too, I think that um, I, I, the standardization question is also somewhat nebulous within Yiddish because although I mentioned it's a language that dates to the year 1000, it doesn't really get standardized till 1924, 1925. Um, so there, I mean, on, on some level, Yiddish, even among Yiddish speakers, is not standardized. So this kind of push for it, and again, against understanding and the kind of like the new ones might be lost. I, 
again, I, I've never read that that was completely important to them. Because um, I actually was going to ask Mark if, if, if Congress Deutsch could even be att uh, considered an early attempt to uh, to standardize Yiddish because it even predates the standardization process of the 1920s. Um, so yeah, standardization is, uh, is an interesting kind of odd question for, for Yiddish because it happens way, way later. <laughs> we'll have one last question, or okay. we'll have two, two last questions, and then we'll have to I, I really enjoyed this panel, as I have all of the classes, wonderful conference. Um, but Carmen, I had a question for you, is um, what, and maybe this is another part of your project, um, how this connects to some of the things like St. Jones International Alliance or the Mary Knowles on the one hand, and then the independent Catholic movements that people like Julie Byrne have written about on the other. Um, um, sorry, we'll just have um, Humphrey as well. Um, just a very quick point. Um, something, that, um, something that Nick just said um, tied in with what Mark was talking about, having to do with the status of Yiddish. Um, there's a world of difference between 1898 and the first Zionist Congress and the situation in the 1920s. To what extent could we even talk about Yiddish as a language in 1898? Was it not simply the jargon that, uh, that Jews managed to communicate with and that they knew was related to German? German, on the other hand, was in, still, in the late 19th century, very much the language of science, the language of progress. Um. Um. Uh, in a sense, except for context, that makes it easy. But because the, what the project is meant to do is, is to look at these changes in religious life. Internationalism is one of them. And, you know, um, in, in terms of the, the larger context of the, of, of the long 1960s, which for me starts in 1940s. So, um, so that, you know, so I, I internationalism, um, kind of these authoritative structures um, disappearing, Religious life has its own 1968. So, you know, so those are, that's the bigger context for me rather than what's happening with other. Um, I mean, Mary Knoll is interesting, um, but it's, a, it's an American, I mean, it's, yeah. it's American foundation, so it's not, and it doesn't found in England. Nico, Mark, did you want to come back on the. the uh, if, yeah, if I have time, I can say that the. It's true that, ideologic, that uh, ideologically there was a world of difference between eight, the late uh, 19th century and the 1920s. Um, in this case, the kind of the, the, the watershed moment would be more the 1905 revolution that kind of made Yiddish legitimate language of, of, uh, of uh, not, not only of uh, kind of oral uh, communication, but, but also of uh, popular and, and political uh, newspapers and periodicals. This, of course, existed already earlier, but um, yeah, but, but there is like a prehistory that uh, was not very much, you know, well known to to Western European Zionists of, of, of uh, kind of pro prospering Yiddish literature already from, from the 1870s and 1880s. So in this sense, Yiddish, yeah, was, was a jargon, but it was also reclaimed as as as, as positive thing, as a jargon that in itself is legitimate. And after the turn of its conference, Yiddishists. Uh, there was a real debate on whether Yiddish was a language, and the answer was absolutely yes. So in, in this sense, uh, there, there is a gradual uh, um, shift. And in the 1920s, um, German was still the language of, of, uh, of, of science, but it was a, kind of deeply compromised by the First World War and the kind of international boycott of, of German as a language of science. So in this sense, the, the, the status of German was, was uh, limited uh, on multiple grounds. Thank you. Um, could you just join me again in thanking all of our speakers? For